Well, good morning, everybody. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Those who don't know, my name is Jason. I'm the co-minister here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. And this is that time when we have a bit of teaching time together. Good catch. Did you guys... Is that... Never mind. Okay. Um, this is a time when we enter into a time of teaching. So the kids go off to their classes. They have some teaching and some crafts here in the auditorium. We have some teaching. I'm sorry we don't have any crafts. I apologize. We might need to work on that a little bit. We can maybe put some adult coloring books in the <laughs> pew backs for you while I'm up here talking. We've been going through a summer-long series called The Art of Community. We've been looking at Scripture and different stories in Scripture, different narratives in Scripture that we think give us a kind of pattern for understanding what it means for us to be in a genuine space of community together. And we've done this by looking at a couple of different chapters in Scripture. In the month of June, we took a look at Acts chapter 2, and we saw how the Spirit of God was coming to liberate and empower people to be in a community of common good. We also took a look in July at Romans chapter 12 and saw a very similar pattern where uh, the Spirit of God was coming and depicted in a different way to empower believers in the early church to be in a community that takes care of each other and honors diversity and is there for each other. And then this month, the month of August, we have taken a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and today we're going to uh, dip a little bit into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For those of you who have ever attended a Christian wedding, you are very familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Don't worry, I'm not going to read that passage today. Not that there's anything wrong with love being patient or kind or not envious or boastful, but we're going to look a little bit beyond that passage today and try to understand what Paul is trying to teach us and how that applies to community. Before we jump into that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, if you have your Bible, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 13 verses 8 through 13, but before we do that, would you just pray with me for a moment? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather here today to raise our voices to offer you our prayers, to bring our hearts and our minds, really our whole bodies to you as a living sacrifice in this place to be transformed and changed and molded by you to become fully human, to become the people that you have created us to be. It's our prayer here this morning that as we wrap up this series on community that you would continue to push us as a church closer and closer to that expression of community where we are in relationship with each other, where we're honoring each other's differences, where we are there for each other's needs. We pray that you would accomplish this by your grace in Jesus name. Amen. When I was very young, maybe, I don't know, four or five years old, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I got my first bicycle. It was a very exciting time for me when I got my first bike. I actually remember this because all my other friends on the block had their own bikes already. And of course, I didn't know how to ride a bike. So like a lot of other people who don't know how to ride a bike, my dad attached training wheels to my bicycle. I distinctly remember the training wheels on my bike. First of all, because my bike was awesome and the training wheels made it look 
not awesome, right? Uh, but secondly, they just were awkward. When my dad first put training wheels on my bike, he attached them to the sides of the back hub, and the two training wheels went all the way to the ground. So really, like the back of my bike had three wheels. This meant that I could like zip around on the sidewalks or in the street, or you know, this is the 1970s. You, you know, my parents let me ride in the middle of the street, uh, and uh, you know, I could zip around no problem with these training wheels, because it was like I had three wheels on the back of my bike, I wasn't gonna tip over. Well, after a little while, for those of you who ever done this with your kids, you know what's next. After a little while, my dad took these wheels and he adjusted them to come up higher, so that the training wheels weren't touching the ground anymore, and, and apparently this is how it's designed to work. Like, as you get better riding the bike, the wheels get elevated higher and higher, so that you are learning to balance on your own. Well, what I discovered is that having those wheels elevated a little bit higher was terrifying. Because as I began to tip one way or the other, I was expecting the wheel to catch me. I was expecting that wheel to keep me from tipping. And I never quite knew like at what point the wheel was going to tip me. So I went from being very confident with like, you know, a four-wheeled bicycle essentially, <laughs> to being like somewhat fearful because I never knew when I was gonna fall as opposed to being caught. At one point I just asked my dad, could you please just take these wheels off? And he did, he took the training wheels off and I jumped on that bike and I just flew down the street. Having those training wheels removed gave me incredible freedom. I was no longer anticipating being caught off guard by tipping too far one way or the other. I just went. You know, I went down the sidewalk. I went down the street. I went down into the curb when I fell over. I mean, freedom means being free to have that fun, but it also means being free to fall on your face, which I did a lot on my bike. Uh, but I still had a great deal of fun. Believe it or not, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13 is about training wheels. I hope that you will bear with me as I try to make that case. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 says this, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. What does this mean, that love never ends? ends. Does it mean that when I fall in love with that person that I'm meant to be with for all of my life, that that love will somehow magically last forever, that it will never wane, that it will never die, that it will never come to an end? That is not what this means. Love between two people takes more attention, more effort than that. There is nothing magical about love that guarantees that it will not come to an end. Instead, Paul is telling us something else. He does not mean that when we truly love, that that affection will not end or be challenged or in some way need to be nurtured. Instead, Paul is saying something else. And the key to that something else is this bit about prophecy and tongues, and all this other sort of odd stuff that we struggle, I think, to relate to these days. So let's read it again. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will cease. 
As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. What Paul is trying to say here is that all these other things that we practice in a religious setting, when he says prophecy, when he says tongues, when he says knowledge, he's talking about all the things that we do in a kind of religious setting like this. He says those things are incomplete. That everything that we do in this space is simply a partial reflection of something that is more complete. All of our laws, all of our rules, all of our practices are incomplete. All of our prayers, all of our songs, all of our teachings, all of our efforts at communion are incomplete. They are impartial. But there is something that is complete. There's something that is fulfilled. There's something that is perfect. And Paul says that is love. When Paul says love will never end, he's saying that love is the thing that all those other things are pointing towards. All these things are good. We come here and we sing, and yes, that's good. We come here and we pray, and yes, that's good. We come here and I preach, and sometimes that's good. <laughs> but it is not the fullness of what we have been made for. It's not the reality to which those things point. As good as my preaching is, and I know it's so good, you guys, it is not the fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God, the consummation of what it means to be fully human in this life. All of these other things are incomplete. Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, does something really interesting. He and his disciples are walking through a grain field. You've heard this story. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. And they're picking grain off the heads of wheat. And they're taking that grain and they're rubbing it between their hands in order to shuck the grain. And then they're eating those raw pieces of grain out of their hands. They are essentially practicing that Old Testament, that Hebrew Bible guarantee that the poor can glean from the fields in order to eat. But the problem is, Jesus and his disciples are doing this on a Saturday. They're doing it on the Sabbath. And so those who are experts in the law, those who are proficient in the religious rules, condemn him and his followers, and they say, how can you eat on the Sabbath? Jesus says something, I think, incredibly profound. He says, man or humanity was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for humanity. Listen, you do not exist for these rules. These rules exist for you. And at any point, if that rule to not prepare food on the Sabbath, if you're Jewish no longer serves your needs, then it's okay to let it go. These rules, these practices, as good as they might be, at some point may not be good anymore. In Acts chapter 10, we have an even more vivid depiction of this. 
When Peter gets a vision from God, he's praying up on a rooftop, he gets a vision from God, a bunch of animals descend from heaven, and they're all the unclean animals, the animals that good Jews are not supposed to eat. And God says to Peter, kill them, cook them, and eat them. And Peter says, absolutely not, Lord, I'm a good Jew. I don't eat those things. God says something incredibly profound. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. Now, as much as I like shrimp and bacon, that passage is not about food. (laughs) Because immediately after that, Peter is summoned to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile Roman soldier. And the Spirit of God falls upon Cornelius and his house as Peter is preaching the gospel. And Peter says, how in the world is this possible that an uncircumcised Gentile could receive the Spirit of God? Who am I to withhold baptism from you? This proves to be an incredible controversy in the early church. It's the occasion for the very first council where there's a debate. It's depicted in Acts chapter 15. And people are arguing, can Gentiles be a part of this thing or not? Or do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to eat the right things? Do they have to observe the right festivals, the right holidays? And the decision they come to is this. If God has included them, who are we to exclude them? If God has included them, who are we to say They can't be a part of this. And we know that God has included them because the Spirit of God is on them. Listen, y'all, Gentiles were an abomination. They were like shrimp and pork. Do not touch, do not eat with them, do not consort with them. But God does away with those rules because they're no longer good for humanity. I don't know what we do with this, you guys. The only conclusion that I can come to is that perhaps, just possibly, maybe, our spiritual laws and practices and rules of order are not the point. None of that is the point. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I had a very good friend. I was just entering into ministry. I was a youth leader in a small church in the mountains of Utah, and I had a good friend who had a habit of inviting the pastors in the area to his house for dinner on a regular basis, and a lot of pastors came to his house for dinner on a regular basis because we knew that we could go there and drink wine and scotch and smoke cigars, and nobody would talk about it. And we all had a great time hanging out over at this friend's house. And we would often get into these religious debates, theological debates. And I remember a good friend of mine who was a Presbyterian minister in that town. He and I, for some reason, would always get into these like, you know, fierce and fun little debates. And it just so happened one time when we were hanging out, we got to talking about the fact that the entire neighborhood had turned against him and his wife, and were speaking badly about him and his wife because they had a pool in their house. Their parsonage had an indoor pool. That's a whole nother topic for another conversation at another time. But the point is, his parsonage had an indoor pool, and the lock for the exterior door to that pool was broken. So anybody could walk into that indoor pool at any time. And the neighbors were worried about kids in the neighborhood knowing that they could get into that pool at any time. 
and swimming and a child may be drowning while the family was away. And so the neighborhood literally asked this pastor and his wife to fix the lock on the door so that kids couldn't get in. And he had refused to fix the lock on the door because he was upset about all the gossiping that had happened in the neighborhood about him and all the slandering that had happened about him. And, I, and here I was, I'm in my early 20s, and I'm like, Phil, why don't you just fix the lock? And he said, it's not about the lock. It's not about the pool. It's about the character assassination that I'm going through because people have been talking about me. They aren't honoring Matthew chapter 18. Now, for those of you who don't know, Matthew 18 is where Jesus gives instructions for how believers ought to take up offenses with each other. They should do it in an orderly fashion. If I have a problem with Dan, I should go to Dan. If he doesn't listen to me, then I should get another person like Alex, and Alex and I should go to Dan. I'm just picking on Dan because he has a good sense of humor. These are Jesus' plain, simple, and very helpful instructions for how to deal with conflict. Well, Phil's problem was that the neighborhood hadn't honored that way of resolving the conflict. And I said, so what? Just fix the lock. I don't understand what the problem is. He said, the problem is, is that they have broken Matthew chapter 18. I said, who cares? He said, I would rather a child drown than Matthew 18 be broken. And because I'm a bit of a smart ass, I said, man was not made for Matthew 18. Matthew 18 was made for man. Yes, I said that. Listen, the rules are not the point, y'all. The rules are here. The practices are here. Our worship is here. Our preaching is here. Our communion is here to drive us towards a better end. And that end is love. Paul says very simply that the point of all of this is that we would learn to love. And this is very simply, not to put too fine a point on it, about growing up. In verse 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, when I became adult, I put an end to childish ways. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it's time to grow up, you guys. He continues. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide in these three remain, and the greatest of these is love. Love, you guys, is what all of our religious rules and practices and worship and singing and preaching, love is what all of those things are meant to teach us. And nothing else. We don't do this in this place to learn how to obey. We do this in this place to learn how to love. And that is extraordinarily difficult. It's harder than learning how to ride a bike. It's not rocket science. It's much harder than that. 
Learning to love other human beings requires that we adopt the posture of Christ, as Paul said, who learned to pour himself out for other people, for their own good. It's no wonder that people retreat into a kind of rules-based spirituality because that is much easier. It's easier to say, do not touch this, do not taste that, do not practice that, than it is to put ourselves in a position of honest vulnerability and love another human being where they need it, how they need it. The problem with us retreating into a kind of rules-based approach to Christianity is that it is a rulership by fear. Just like me on my training wheels, we are afraid of what will happen if we fall too far to the right or too far to the left. At some point, it's time to grow up and take off the training wheels and be free. Now, I'm not saying don't go to church. I'm saying that if you do go to church, that it should not be ruling your life based on fear. It should be driving you toward the endless fullness of learning to love other people courageously, boldly, and vulnerably, because that is what Jesus calls us into. And that is hard. It also is easy in the sense that we are empowered by the grace of God to do it. That's why Jesus said, take up my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can either retreat into a life of fear where we are bounded on all sides by strict rules and high walls that tell us what we can and cannot do, or we can be free of those things because the love and the grace of Christ has taught us that we are lovable and gracious by His goodness, and we can risk loving other people, even though they're different. It is a fear-based religion that teaches us not to trust each other or love each other or care about each other because we are different. It is a love-based religion that says, yes, I know this person is different than you, but my grace is there in that difference. This is what God calls us to. This is the point of a community that gathers itself around the person who sacrificed his life for others. That's the life that we are called into. I know, it's scary. But if at any point our songs and our prayers and our preaching get in the way of us being loving, then we should eliminate those songs and prayers and preaching and get to the business of love. I mean that seriously. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we've talked a lot about this summer, wrote about the idea of a religionless Christianity because he was deeply disheartened that the confessing Lutheran churches in Germany sat idly by while a fascist government vilified people who were gay, people who were Jewish, 
people who are of color. And he said there may come a time when we have to let go of the religion in order to really follow Christ. If at some point our religion gets in the way of us following Christ, we should put an end to it. I don't think it has to be that way. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But it's my job to remind us that none of this is the point. So let's get to the point. Let's learn to love each other. Let's commit ourselves to loving each other courageously, boldly, and honestly in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather and to sing and to pray, to receive communion together, to be reminded that you call us into a life that ends in love. We pray that you would genuinely, uh, graciously, and persistently call us into that life. That we would begin, be willing to let go of whatever rules or laws or practices we have acquired that are keeping us from loving because we're afraid. That like Jesus or like Peter, we would follow your spirit into love even when it looks like we are letting go of the rules. Give us the courage to grow up, to be free of the training wheels. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm Alex, I'm the associate pastor here, and we've got a couple quick announcements how you can get involved. The first is, if you love what's happening here up on stage with the band, we are encouraging anyone else who has musical abilities, AV abilities to come get involved every Wednesday. Yeah, he's looking at you every Wednesday. You can come join them, rehearse with them, or speak to Joey. Uh, next up, we have a new Sunday service time. How y'all feeling about this? Yeah, good, good. So it's gonna be at 10 a.m. So next Sunday is our last service at 11 a.m. So if you start coming at 11 a.m. after that, you're gonna be late, okay? So come at 10 a.m. That is our new service time. And then lastly, we have a really exciting new class coming up called Branches. This is gonna be our leaders training course. It's gonna be three interactive Zoom sessions. And this is where you're gonna learn how to lead in an inclusive, relational, and organizational way in line with our values and practices. So if you feel like you really wanna lead here or you already are leading, this is a great class for you to take part in. Lastly, lastly we are a 501c3 nonprofit. We rely on the gifts and donations of people like you. If you'd like, you can donate online, you can give in the back there, or you can scan this QR code. So for all of that, there are QR codes around the building. You can go to our website. That's how you sign up for all of that. So before we end today, I am encouraged to take a 
serious look at the ways where I have let rules become more important than love. Right? We heard about the man in the pool, but we all know we've been that man too, right? So I just want you to maybe think this week. If that happens, notice it. Why did it happen? Get curious about it. What, what made that happen? And then see if right in that moment you can correct it, right, in the way of love. So that would be my hope for all of us this week. So may the peace of God be with you. And also with you. We'll see you next week.